Okay, so next podcast, domestic issues and Cold War in the 1950s. So we're going to start off with Eisenhower Republicanism at home. This is also known as the dynamic conservatism. So in effect, uh, Ike Eisenhower, he's going to maintain the New Deal programs of FDR. Now this dynamic conservatism meant that being conservative when it comes to money and liberal when it comes to human beings. So Social Security benefits are going to be in, end up being extended, and the minimum wage is going to be raised to a dollar an hour. Now, granted, that doesn't sound like a whole lot, but you have to think about the time period. This is the 19, you know, late 1940s, early 1950s. Uh, oh, Ike is going to try to help, try to do the whole middle of the road approach to government policy in the face of the New Deal and World War II. <clears throat> Now, the Interstate Highway Act is going to come in place in 1954. Now, this is going to create the modern interstate freeway system that we know today. It was a $27 billion plan that built 42,000 miles of freeways. And we end up with countless jobs that are going to be created because of construction. And this is going to facilitate suburbanization. Suburban. So, suburban. Anyway. Uh, it's going to dwarf any of the New Deal public works programs like the TVA or the uh, CCC. The federal government is going to pay 90% of the cost, and the states are only going to pay that leftover 10%. Now, the underlying purpose was an evacuation in case of nuclear war because, you know, Cold War, or the need to move troops and equipment quickly throughout the country because, again, we were, us and Russia were basically under constant threat of each other. Okay, Eisenhower is going to seek to balance the federal budget, and he's going to succeed three times in the eight years he's in uh, in the position. He's going to aim to guard against creeping socialism, which he thought you know was the TVA, and he's going to favor privatizing uh, large government holdings like transferring offshore oil fields to the states. Now, by 1959, the U.S. has accrued the highest peacetime deficit in its history. In 54, Ike and Congress had lowered the tax rates for corporations and individuals with high incomes and reduced government revenue. Okay, African-American civil rights, the 1940s and the early 1950s. During World War II, uh, Philip Randolph had convinced FDR to increase access to defense and government jobs to African-Americans. The Fair Employment Practice Commission, or the FEPC, was very short-lived even though there were some modest improvements seen in Randolph's goals. In 1946, Truman is going to create the President's Committee on Civil Rights. And then a year later in 47, the committee is going to publish to secure these rights. And they're going to, this is going to be calling for the desegregation of American society, uh, anti-lynching legislation, which we finally got this year, and an end to poll taxes. Jackie Robinson is going to be the first African-American in Major League Baseball in 47 with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And then in 48, Truman is going to ban racial discrimination in federal government hiring practices, and he will order the desegregation of the armed forces. Uh, African-Americans are then going to be integrated in 53 and would fight in the Korean War. Eisenhower didn't want to be uh, what would be considered a civil rights president like Truman had been. He believed that the existing social order was one that had evolved over time and it did not need to be overhauled. But he oversaw some of the most significant civil rights gains in U.S. history. 
Now, in the 40s, NAACP began to attack the whole separate but equal doctrine that, you know, came about from Plessy v. Ferguson back in the late 1800s. And the way that they did this was by suing segregated colleges and universities. Uh, African Americans have gained entrance into many of these Southern universities due to that, and elementary and secondary schools are still going to see, see, ugh, sorry, are still going to remain segregated until Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka in '54. The NAACP had filed suit on behalf of Linda Brown, who was an African-American elementary school student. The Topeka School Board had denied Brown admission to an all-white school. The case is going to reach the Supreme Court in 52, where it was argued twice over a two-year period. Thurgood Marshall, who was the lead counsel for the NAACP, would represent Brown. He charged that public school segregation violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. He also argued segregation deprived blacks an equal educational opportunity, which it did. He also stated that separate could not be equal because segregation in itself lowered the morale and the motivation of black students. Chief Justice Earl Warren would persuade the court to unanimously overturn Plessy v. Ferguson. The separate educational facilities are inherently unequal and it has no place in public education. That's going to be part of one of the, uh, one of their, oh, what's it called? Their opinions. There we go. The, you know, that comes at the end of the, the uh, Supreme Court trials. It's going to be part of the opinion. Uh, one year later, the court is going to order school integration with all deliberate speed. Now, the response to the Brown versus Board of Education. A lot of your Southern officials are going to consider the ruling a threat to state and local authority. Eisenhower believed the government should not try to force integration, and he calls it, called his appointment of Warren to the Supreme Court my biggest damn fool mistake I ever made. So, obviously, he was not for this. 80% of Southern whites opposed the Brown decision. Some white students, encouraged by their parents, refused to attend integrated schools, and the KKK reemerged in much more violent incarnation than it had in the 1920s. Southern, Southern state legislators passed more than 450 laws and resolutions aimed at preventing enforcement of Brown. The massive resistance of 1956 was where the Virginia state legislature passed a massive resistance law cutting off state aid to D segregated schools, and it represented a sort of nullification of federal law. Now, by 1962, only one half of 1% of non-white school children in the South were in integrated schools. Finally, we come to the end of this massive resistance. In 59, federal and state courts nullified Virginia laws that prevented state funds from going to integrated schools. 55-56, we get the Montgomery bus boycott, as y'all saw when we went to the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis there. On December 1st, 55, Rosa Parks was arrested in Montgomery, Alabama, after refusing to give her seat to a white man. She was ordered by the bus driver to sit at the back of the bus. Four days later, Park was found guilty and fined $14. African-American leaders called for a boycott. Over 150 people were arrested and charged as well for boycotting buses during the following months. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. is going to be the leader of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, and he became a leader of the boycott. The Montgomery bus boycott lasted over a year, 381 days. Boycott leaders organized carpools to replace bus transportation, and even some white housewives drove their domestic servants to work. King's house was bombed, and he was later arrested, spending two weeks in jail. And this is going to bring national attention to the boycott. 88 other black leaders were arrested and fined for conspiring to boycott. 
In 56, the Supreme Court ruled segregation on Montgomery buses was unconstitutional. And on December 20th of that same year, the segregationists gave up. The boycott gave the Civil Rights Movement one of its first victories and made Martin Luther King Jr. one of the national leaders of the cause. Then in 57, the crisis in Little Rock, bless our hearts, Governor Orville Faubus is going to order the Arkansas National Guard to surround Central High School to prevent nine black students, also known as the Little Rock Nine, from entering the school. A federal court ordered the removal of the National Guard from the school and allowed the students to enter. Riots will erupt, and, the, and this is going to force President Eisenhower to act. Eisenhower reluctantly ordered 1,000 federal troops into Little Rock and nationalized the Arkansas National Guard, this time protecting the students. This was the first time since Reconstruction a president had sent federal troops into the South to enforce the Constitution. The next year, Little Rock's public schools closed entirely. Whites attended private schools or outside city schools, and most blacks had no school to attend to at all. Yet, by August 1959, Little Rock's school board gave in to the integration after another Supreme Court ruling. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So in January of 57, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or the SCLC, was formed with Martin Luther King Jr. as its first president. The organization promoted nonviolent resistance and civil disobedience as a means to end segregation and discrimination in the South. Now, the nonviolent resistance. King is going to urge followers not to fight with authorities, even if provoked. His nonviolent tactics were similar to Mahatma Gandhi, and both were inspired by Henry David Thoreau's Civil Disobedience, which was written in 1849. He urged for the use of moral arguments to change the minds of oppressors. King linked nonviolence to Christianity. The whole love one's enemy, uh, slapped on one side of the face, turn the other cheek. Now, civil disobedience. King is going to preach to his followers that refusing to obey unjust laws was an effective strategy, even if it meant going to jail. Sit-ins would also become an effective new strategy for for nonviolence and civil disobedience. So students in universities and colleges all over the all over the United States would vow to integrate lunch counters, hotels, and entertainment facilities. The Greensboro sit-in happened in February of 1960. There's going to be four North Carolina college freshmen that will stage a sit-in at Woolworth Department Store lunch counter for having been refused service. Although not the first sit-in staged, it became perhaps the most famous sit-in of the civil rights era. After thousands of people had participated in the sit-in Merchants in Greensboro gave in six months later. There's going to be a wave of sit-ins occur throughout the country. Protesters targeted southern franchises of national chains. There's going to be variations of sit-ins that would emerge. So, kneel-ins for churches, read-ins in libraries, wade-in at beaches, and sleep-ins and motel lobbies. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or the SNCC, was a group of nonviolent uh, students that would provoke increasingly hostile actions from those who oppose them. Oftentimes, uh, protesters were beaten or harassed. The SNCC, or SNCC as it was called, was created by the SNLC to better organize the movement. They did jail, not bail, and this is going to be, become their popular slogan. So students would adopt civil obedience when confronted with jail. Civil rights legislation. In response to the civil rights movement, Congress passed legislation to increase voting rights for African Americans in the South. The Civil Rights Act of 1957 stipulated that first civil rights legislation, sorry, 
was stipulated as the first civil rights legislation enacted by Congress since Reconstruction. It was proposed by Eisenhower, and the law created a permanent civil rights commission and a civil rights division of the Justice Department, which had power to prevent interference with voting rights. Although the law was weak due to opposition by, you guess it, Southerners in Congress, it opened the way to more effective legislation in the 1960s, and especially in 1964. And then we get the Civil Rights Act of 1960. Now, it's going to increase the effectiveness of the Civil Rights Act of 57. Federal courts were given authority to register black voters, and it imposed penalties on anyone who tried to prevent someone from registering to vote or actually voting. Now, there's going to be other minority groups that come to the front in, 19, in the 1950s, so Mexican-Americans. So, the irrigation of new lands in the Southwest resulted in a demand for low-wage agricultural labor. Now, similar to World War II, Congress created a temporary worker program to bring in seasonal agricultural workers. Many braqueros, and these are those seasonal agricultural workers, remain in the U.S. illegally, joining thousands of other illegal, undocumented immigrants. Operation Wetback. Now, this is what Eisenhower instituted, and he deported more than 3 million allegedly undocumented immigrants, many without due process of law. Hundreds of thousands of immigrants continued to spill over the border from Mexico. By 1970, the percentage of Mexican-Americans living in the urban areas reached 85%. Native Americans, or indigenous, indigenous Americans. Uh, unemployment on indigenous reservations was staggering. Uh, after World War II, Congress reversed the Indian Reorganization Bill, or the, you know, that part that was uh, in the New Deal, uh, with attempts to assimilate indigenous, indigenous Americans, like the Dawes Severalty Act of 1887. Now, between 54 and 62, Congress withdrew financial support from 61 reservations. Over 500,000 acre, 500, acres of indigenous lands were transferred to non-Indigenous. Congress sought to lure Indigenous uh, Americans off reservations into urban areas through relocation programs. By 1960, 60,000 Indigenous Americans had left the reservations for the city. Most lived in poverty, and a third returned eventually to the reservation. All right, the Cold War in Europe, so 53 to 61. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, D-U-L-L-E-S, initiated a new policy. It was called the Rollback of Communism rather than containment. Two major principles of the early Eisenhower administration were to encourage liberation of the captive peoples in Eastern Europe by a widespread use of political pressure and propaganda. So there would be radio broadcasts that were beamed to countries behind the Iron Curtain by the Voice of America and Radio Free Europe, uh, urging people to overthrow their communist government. Then you had massive retaliation. Any Soviet or Chinese aggression would be countered with an American nuclear weapon attack directly on the USSR and China. Brinksmanship was Dull's main tactic, and this is the art of never backing down from a crisis, even if it meant pushing the nation to the brink of war. In effect, the new policy rejected Truman's containment policy, which had tolerated Soviet power, where had where it had already existed. Eisenhower and Dulles believed U.S. foreign policy should try to roll back and destroy communism because communism was seen as immoral. Eisenhower was to appear as a moderate or the good cop when compared to Dulles, who was the bad cop. Dulles served to deter the Soviets while deflecting attention away from Eisenhower. The U.S. and USSR stepped to the arms race to accumulate sophisticated nuclear arsenals. Preemptive strike cap capabilities 
were emphasized. In effect, strike first and destroy the enemy before they can strike back. Americans began preparing for contingencies in case of nuclear war, like the Interstate Highway Act, and thousands of people will start building bomb shelters in their backyards. The mutually assured destruction, or mutual assured destruction, MAD. The Soviet development of the hydrogen bomb in 53 meant Dull's policy of massive retaliation was less practical. Both sides would lose in a thermonuclear war. MAD became an important deterrent for nuclear war during the next four decades. So we're like, all right, if we try to destroy them, they're going to destroy us, and it's going to suck all around. The Warsaw Pact, <clears throat> sorry, West Germany, with its half million troops, is going to join NATO in 1955. It, in the same year, the Soviets organized the Warsaw Pact, Pact in response to new NATO strength in the West. It included all of the Eastern European satellite countries controlled by the Soviets. The New Look Military. Eisenhower sought to reduce the military budget by scaling back the size of the Army and Navy while building up an air fleet of super bombers with nuclear weapons. A nuclear force would cost less than a, high, or a huge conventional force, so you got more bang for your buck. However, the new nuclear, rep, new nuclear force represented overkill, while the U.S. was less able to respond to minor crises like in Hungary. Military costs soared due to expensive aerial and atomic hardware, hardware and Eisenhower's, sorry, Eisenhower's fail, farewell address, I always have trouble saying that word, in 1961 was where he warned Americans of the dangerous growth of the military-industrial complex. So it's these vast interwoven military establishment and arms industries, and its power, power was enormous and largely in the National Security Council and had the potential to affect democracy everywhere. Ironically, Ike's own policies had actually nurtured the growth of this military-industrial complex, or MIC. All right, there's going to be a thaw of the Cold War tensions that will occur after Stalin's death in 53. After a two-year power struggle, Nikita Khrushchev took control in 55, and he publicly denounced the bloody excesses of the Stalin regime. Khrushchev sought peaceful coexistence with the Western democracy and set out to improve living conditions in the USSR by shifting military spending to consumer goods. He also hoped to impress nations in Asia, Africa, and Latin America with the superiority of communism as an economic system. To the West, he said, we will bury you economically. War between the USSR and the West seemed unnecessary. Peaceful competition would supposedly demonstrate the superiority of the Soviet system. So the USS agreed to leave Austria in May of 1955. Austria had been divided into four zones after World War II, as Germany had been. The Soviet zone had become a liability after the war, and Soviet withdrawal was seen as a gesture of goodwill and put pressure on the Eisenhower administration to relax tensions and meet the Soviets in Geneva, which was in Switzerland that year. The Geneva summit was in July of 55. It was the first peace conference since Potsdam in, in uh, 45. The U.S., USSR, Britain, and France began discussions on European security and disarmament, but there were no concrete agreements that were reached. The USSR resisted the idea of a reunited Germany, especially since West Germany was now a Western ally. Both sides agreed to the necessity of nuclear disarmament. The U.S. and the USSR voluntarily suspended atmospheric testing in October of 58. The Hungarian, uh, Hungarian up, uprising of 56... The Eastern Bloc nations, inspired by Khrushchev's more liberal rhetoric, are going to begin to seek more freedom in 56. A Polish workers' riot against Soviet power had led to some gains and greater control over their own government. 
Hungarian nationalists staged huge demonstrations in October demanding democracy and independence. Hungarians were inspired by the U.S. position to free people from communist control. In November, Soviet tanks and soldiers quickly moved in to crush the uprising. The U.S. never showed up because Ike did not want a world war over Hungary. The world watched as Budapest became a slaughterhouse. Many saw Dulles call for the liberation of Eastern Europe as impractical. Eisenhower was unwilling to use mass re retaliation over Hungary, and the crisis showed that Eisenhower was more of a moderate when it came to anything with the Cold War. All right, Sputnik 57. This is going to be the beginning of the space race. In 57, the Soviets launched the first ever unmanned artificial satellite into orbit. Americans were horrified at the thought of Soviet technology being capable of transporting nuclear weapons. U.S. technological superiority over the Russians now seemed over. The public demanded that the missile gap be eliminated, yet Americans manned bombers were still a powerful deterrent. The National Defense Education Act, or NDEA, Eisenhower ordered a rigorous education program to match Soviet technology. A third of all university scientists and engineers went into full-time weapons research. Special emphasis was placed on math, science, and foreign languages. In 58, the U.S. successfully launched its first satellite into orbit, Explorer 1. NASA, the National Aeronautic Space Agency, was also launched by Eisenhower in the same year. Within 11 years, NASA would successfully send three U.S. astronauts to the moon. The U.S. conducted a massive arms buildup, more than more B-52s, nuclear submarines, and short-range missiles in Europe. Under pressure from hardliners and his government, Khrushchev issued an ultimatum on Berlin in November of 58. He gave Western power six months to vacate West Berlin. Eisenhower and Dulles refused to yield. The visitations are going to ease the Cold War conflict. So the Vice President Nixon would visit the USSR in 59. His kitchen debates with Khrushchev over which country's economic system was better seemed to usher in better relations. In September of the same year, Khrushchev made a two-week trip to the U.S. While the visit helped improve relations, Khrushchev left the U.S. shaken at America's affluence. Ike and Khrushchev agreed to hold a summit the following year. Khrushchev stated the, the Berlin ultimatum would be extended indefinitely. Let's see. Okay, the U-2 incident. It resulted in the worst U.S.-Soviet relations since Stalin's death. In May of 1960, a U-2 spy plane was shot down deep in Soviet territory. The pilot, Francis Gary Powers, was captured by the Soviets. The incident occurred 10 days before the planned Paris summit. The uh, sorry, Eisenhower admitted he authorized the flights for national security. Ike suspended further flights, but Khrushchev demanded an apology. Ironically, the Soviets had conducted massive spying activities in the U.S. since World War II. Ike refused an, you, sorry, Ike refused an apology in Paris, and Khrushchev called off the summit. The Cold War in the Middle East. All right, so we'll start with Iran. The CIA emerged in a coup in Iran in '53 that permanently installed the Shah S H A H. Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, as dictator. The existing leader of Iran, nationalist Mohammad Mossadegh, wanted to nationalize British oil holding its, uh, sorry, holdings in Iran. Mohammad had been de democratically elected as prime minister. The U.S. and Britain saw this as an ominous sign of communist leanings by Mohammad. 
Ironically, Muhammad had been Time Magazine's Man of the Year just a short while earlier. In 79, the Iranian revolutionaries overthrew the Shah and exacted revenge against the U.S. by holding 50 Americans hostage for 444 days. The Suez Canal Crisis. Gamal Abdel Nasir, an, uh, an Arab nationalist, became president of Egypt in 56. He opposed the existence of Israel. And the U.S. had supported Israel's creation in 48 at the expense of the Palestinians. He sought funding for the Aswan Dam on the Upper Nile for irrigation and power. The U.S. agreed to lend money to Egypt but refused to give it arms. The U.S. withdrew its financial aid offer when Nasir seemed to court the USSR and establish diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China, or Red China. In 56, Nasir seized and nationalized the Suez Canal that was owned mostly by British and French stockholders. In October of the same year, France, Britain, and Israel attacked Egypt in an attempt to internationalize the canal. The world seemed on the brink of World War III. Eisenhower honored the UN Charter's non-aggression commitment and reluctantly denounced the attack on Egypt. Siding with the U.S., the Soviets threatened to send troops to Egypt. Britain, France, and Israel withdrew their troops, and a U.N. force was sent to Egypt to keep order. Nasir gained control of the Suez Canal. Britain and France were angry at the U.S. for siding against its NATO allies. Now, in 57, we get the Eisenhower Doctrine. This is when it was announced, anyway. It will empower the president to extend economic and military aid to nations of the Middle East if threatened by a communist-controlled country. In 58, Marines will enter Lebanon to promote political stability during a change of governments. All right, so the Cold War in Asia. So we'll start with the Korean War, which uh, we'll get more. Oh, well, just kidding. All right, so the Korean War. So after four years of war, the UN forces led by the U.S. will successfully contain the spread of communism into South Korea. Vietnam, the Ho Chi, uh, Ho Chi Minh, who was a communist, began fighting for the liberation of Indochina from French colonial rule days after the end of World War II. Communists defeated French forces at Den Ben Pu in March of 54, France's last major outpost in northern Vietnam. The U.S. had given much aid to France to prevent communist expansion in Vietnam. Those wanted U.S. bombers to aid the French, even suggesting the use of nuclear weapons. And this does sound very familiar to um, MacArthur. All right, Eisenhower refused, fearing British non-support. A multinational conference at Geneva will split Vietnam in half at the 17th parallel. So, you know, the, the Korea was the 48th, and Vietnam is the 17th. Ho Chi Minh accepted it based on assurances that Vietnam-wide elections would occur within two years. In the South, a pro-Western government under Ning Ding Dame took control in Saigon. Ying's fail... Sorry, failure to hold elections seriously divided the country. Communist guerrillas in the South, the Viet Cong, increased their campaign against Ying. China continued to support North Vietnam. Dulles created the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, or the CETO, the CETO S-E-A-T-O, to, drop, to prop up Diem's regime. Britain and France were included. The organization intended to be a NATO in Southeast Asia. Only the Philippine Republic, Thailand, and Pakistan signed in 54. The U.S. pledged to prevent communist expansion in Asia of Vietnam and Taiwan. Ike sent military advisors to train South Vietnamese forces. 
The domino theory is going to dictate U.S. policy in Southeast Asia. So if one country fell to communism, the neighboring countries would also fall like dominoes. So this is going to include countries like Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Burma, and possibly even India. The domino theory eventually pulled the U.S. into the Vietnam War in the 60s. Okay. Kuei and Matsu. In 55, Chinese communists began to shell a tiny nationalist island where U.S. ally uh, Zhang Zixi had committed one-third of his Taiwanese army. The People's Republic of China claimed the two tiny islands of Kuei and Matsu. Eisenhower gained Congress's approval and sent the U.S. 7th Fleet to aid Zhang. Doles convinced Zhang to renounce force in rega- uh, regaining the Chinese mainland and thus quieted communist fears. All right, so the Cold War in Latin America, the overthrow of Guatemala in 54. President Jacobo uh, Guzman had, had nationalized 500,000 acres belonging to the U.S. Fruit Company of Boston and showed strong communist sympathies. The United Fruit Company asked the U.S. government for help. The CIA helped overthrow Guzman in 54 after he began accepting arms from the Soviet Union. World opinion widely condemned the coup, even staunch allies like Britain, France, and the UN Secretary General. Vice President Nixon had to call off an, an eight-nation goodwill tour of Latin America after meeting hostile moms in Venezuela and Peru in 58. The U.S. was seen as the colossus of the North throughout the much of Latin America. In Cuba... Prior to 59, U.S. companies were active in Cuba. They owned 90% of Cuban uh, mines and 40% of Cuban uh, sugar operations. Uh, Cuba had the highest standard of living in Latin America and was among the highest in literacy. Uh, On New Year's Day in 59, Fidel Castro will take over. Uh, uh, Fulgencio Batista, an oppression leader since 51, will flee Castro is going to visit the U.S., but Ike is going to refuse to see him as he was unsure if Castro was a communist. So Vice President Nixon will meet with him instead. Castro will eventually confiscate American-owned property. In 59, Khrushchevik is going to decide to aid Cuba. Uh, the deteriorating uh, human relations with the U.S. is going to lead Castro to seek the Soviets as an ally. In July of 60, Khrushchevik is going to publicly extend the Soviet nuclear umbrella to Cuba. Uh, He's also going to state that the Monroe Doctrine was dead and he would shower missiles on the U.S. if it attacked Cuba. The U.S. began plotting against Castro. In uh, September of 60, the CIA opened talks with the Mafia to arrange a hit on Castro. The U.S. broke diplomatic relations with Cuba in 61, and Castro encouraged revolutions in other parts of Latin America. The U.S. would now see Castro as a serious threat to national security. The the U.S. also persuaded the Organization of American States, the OAS, to condemn communist infiltration into the Americas. And in turn, Congress would respond to Eisenhower's recommendation for $500 million in aid for Latin America, the uh, Latin American Marshall Plan. Now, Eisenhower eventually is going to be evaluated. So he, if you look at him under the lens of history, He would further the cause of the New Deal in a lot of different ways, and he would further embed them in American life. And America would grow in prosperity during the Eisenhower years. Now, in contrast to most lame duck presidents, Eisenhower would show more skilled leadership during his last two years than any time before. Now, for six years, Democrats would control Congress, and Ike would use the veto power 169 times and was only overridden twice. Public work projects are going to revitalize entire areas of the country, and the Federal Highway Project 
project would create modern interstate freeway systems while providing countless jobs in construction. He's going to work with Khrushchev to tone down Cold War his, uh, hostilities during much of the 1950s. There's going to be a major criticism that that would be, you know, seen as recklessness of massive retaliation and also the use of nuclear diplomacy and, you know, ending the Korean War. But Ike exercised restraint in military affairs despite having been a top general in the U.S. Army. Now, Eisenhower's greatest failing was his anemic stance on civil rights and the plight of other minorities. Now, up until 1957, many blacks would struggle to get federal assistance for civil rights, and then you had Operation Wetback that would target thousands of Mexicans without due process of law, and there would be that loss of funding and lands that would occur for indigenous American reservations. All right, so we are at the end of this chapter. We're moving along pretty well. The next one we're going to get into is the 1960s and Vietnam. And your terms to know will be posted soon.